Amen. Well, this was a special Christmas for our family. So we have been overseas for a number of years. And so this was our first time being back home in Texas with family for Christmas in about a decade, about 10 years. And so we wanted to do it right. We wanted to have a proper Christmas celebration. So, of course, a lot of that for our family involved food. And so on Christmas Day itself, this huge feast was prepared. And so my, my dad got some special meat from somewhere and made this huge, like, prime rib roast. And then my, my mom and my sisters were making all these vegetables. We had the potatoes and the, the salad and the Brussels sprouts and, and all kinds of other things. I'm not exactly sure what all of them were. But then we had, after all of that whole thing, we had the dessert. And so we, for dessert, there was not one pie, but there was... Uh, I don't know, two or three pies. My son Emmett was making pies. Somebody made a cake. And so it was just, just this mountain of food. And, and I knew that maybe we'd gone a little bit too far when at the end of the whole thing, I'm, you know, we're, we're serving the dessert and I'm kind of helping give the portions out. And here's Moses. Moses, our six-year-old, uh, there. And, and, and I say, Moses, here's your pie. Do you want a scoop of ice cream on that? And he looks at me. He kind of has this sort of sick look on his face, and he says, no, no, it's, it, it's enough. It's too much. And I've never heard him say that before. That was the first time because, you know, Moses is like, you know, a normal six-year-old, and he likes his ice cream as much as the next guy. Uh, but Moses is saying, Dad, amidst, amidst all of this, amidst this huge feast that we've had, now is not the time for ice cream. What are you thinking, old man? This is not it. Now is not the time. Let's do ice cream some other time. This, I say, you know, Grace Church, is now the time for missions? Is now a good time for missions? Should we do missions some other time? Because 2020 has been quite the year around the world, has it not? It's been a devastating year. Uh, You know, I know that the impact has been different in different places, but COVID-19 has, has killed millions around the world. Tens of millions have been infected and, uh, and impacted to various degrees. Uh, we have in Dubai, especially, I know it's true other places too, this, this sort of health crisis has brought about economic crisis um, because of companies having to close down and not operate and lockdowns and all of these things. In Dubai, you know, just a few years ago, we were the fastest growing city in the world Uh, But now we might be one of the fastest contracting cities in the world as so many businesses have closed and that means people are out of work. Many, you know, hundreds of people in our church have either lost jobs or lost incomes, been on reduced salaries. So it's been um, an economic crisis where we are and I know other places in the world too. Uh, Ministries have been disrupted. It's been a crazy year politically with all the arguments that have come about as a result of COVID and other issues as well with the elections. It seems like as a society, we have never been more divided and more angry and more hostile towards each other. So we say all of that and we say, you know what? We've got problems. We've got a lot of issues right here in our own backyard. So do we need missions now? Is now a good time for missions? Maybe it's kind of like that ice cream and Moses to say, hey, we like missions. Missions is, is a good thing. But is now really the time? It, you know, should we really be making disciples in other countries and starting seminaries and other places and giving all this time and, and all this effort to, to planting churches? When we got so many issues right here on the home front, maybe we need to get our house in order now and emphasize missions later on. Do it some other time. All this sending people to the ends of the earth, it's expensive. Budgets are tight. Why don't we just scale back right now? Let's do that later. So the question I'm really asking is, is missions really essential? In the midst of a pandemic, is missions something that is essential for us as the church of Jesus Christ to be doing? And for the answer to that question, I want us to go to an unexpected place, and that is the book of Joel, chapter 2. Chapter 2, I'm not sure when you last heard a sermon on the book of Joel. It might be in the crispier section of your Bible, uh, but it's an amazing book and one I think that's uniquely suited to the time in which we live. So turn to Joel 2 and let me read, and I will read a long section from this chapter. Joel 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. 
For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. Their land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Verse 6. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He, he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion and consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the Eden, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors, there will be those whom the Lord calls. That's Joel 2. So this is a passage, one of the first things we can observe. It's a passage that has a lot to do with agriculture, with farming. And this may be a passage that some of you can relate to from that perspective. I know this is an area where there, uh, many of you are involved in different aspects of agriculture, of growing things. 
I'll confess from the outset that that is not true of me. I am not much of a, a grower. I tried to grow a houseplant one time and it didn't work out, but we won't talk about that right now. Um, but just imagine if, if you're a farmer and, you, and you're the kind of farmer that depends uh, for your sustenance on what you grow in, on the field. Uh, you're, if, the, if the crops don't come up, your family doesn't eat. You're that kind of a farmer, and you live in that kind of a culture, and, and everyone you know is a farmer. It's an agrarian society, and so you are dependent on the yield of the land. That's the way this society worked. And in such a society, imagine that one day you're out there, you're, you're getting ready for the day, you're having your coffee in the morning, and you hear this sound, and it's a sound of, of buzzing. It's, you know, bzzz, and you say, what is that? And you look out there, and it's a locust plague. There are locusts everywhere. They're covering all of the fields are eating everything up, and it's, it's, it's a destruction on a massive scale. This is a catastrophe. And so at the end of the day, you look out there, the locusts have moved on, and like a third of your crops are dead. This is devastating. But at least it's only a third. At least you've got two-thirds left. But then the next day, they're back. More locusts, different locusts, and they, and they eat up more of it. And the next day, more, and the next day, more. And they, they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. And by the time they're done, it's all gone. It's all destroyed. There's nothing left. And see, that's the situation in Joel. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. It says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. And so it's all gone. There's nothing to eat this year. There's nothing to plant next year. One thing after the other after the other. This is devastation. And so this is the right kind of book for a year like 2020 as we come into a year like 2021. And so after that lament, he, he's talking about that plague. They've suffered this locust plague. They've suffered this devastation. That's chapter 1. And then as we get into chapter 2... As we just read, there's this reflection on what now? What happens now? What should God's people be thinking about now? What should God's people be expecting now? What should God's people be doing now after that crisis, after that plague in the midst of devastation? What do God's people do? And so as we're asking this question, is missions essential in a time such as this? I think as Joel responds to the crisis of his present day, he gives us three answers to that question. I want to summarize them by using three words, and the first of those words is wrath. Wrath. Because Joel is saying, as we just read in Joel 2, Joel is saying to these people, he's saying, what's going on now, the, the, the plague that you're in right now, the crisis that's happening right now, he's saying, that ought to remind you of something that's going to happen later. What's happening now should remind you of something later, and that's the point of 2.1. Look at 2.1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for why? For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. He's saying what's happening right now is devastating. But what's happening later, it's going to be even worse. Because it's the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. And so, so the next verses describe that day. He, he says, here's the kinds of things that are going to happen on this coming day of Yahweh. It's not so much one day on the calendar, but a, a coming time where God is going to act. God is going to pour out his wrath and vengeance as well as his blessing on his people. And so, so you, you see this, this idea of what God is going to do on that day. On the one hand, there's going to be catastrophe and there's going to be invading armies and more plagues. And we hear that kind of language in Joel 2. But on the other hand, it's going to be a day of blessing for those who know God and who are in relationship to God. And we hear this language here, this language of darkness and gloom and clouds and earthquakes and eclipses. The idea is that this is the language of the physical manifestation of God's presence. It reminds us of, of Mount Sinai where, you know, Exodus 19 where God appears to his people on the mountain in Sinai and the, the earth shook and there was darkness and, you know, all of these things are, this is what happens when the, the presence of God manifests itself in a particular way in the world saying that's going to happen on this day of the Lord. And so 2.11 summarizes this day. It says, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's a question we should be asking. This, this day is coming, this day is coming where, where God is going to physically manifest himself, where God is going to be present in this world, and who can endure that day? 
Who can stand on that day because every one of the 7.5 billion people who's living in this world today have, as Romans 3.23 says, sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, you and me, uh, like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2.3 says, that we were by nature children of wrath. All of us, all of us, belong to the wrath of a holy God who must, must punish our sin, pour out his wrath on our sin. And so, back in Joel, you have this audience, and they've got every reason to say, think of these people, these farmers who just had their crops devastated, they have every reason to say, you know what, let's think about that eschatology stuff later on, Let's postpone the Sunday school lesson about the the end times and the day of the Lord and all that kind of stuff. That's all well and good. We can talk about that sometime, but we got problems right now. We got things we got to deal with right now. This crisis is what we need to focus on now. But what God is saying, he's saying the reason why this eschatology is important is because you've got to learn the lesson of this crisis. Don't waste your crisis is what God is saying. He's saying this locust devastation is bad. But it's actually the least of your problems because what's coming up is even worse. The day of Yahweh is coming. The lesson is that devastation is not a time to take our eyes off the future, but rather it's a time for us to remember the future that is awaiting every man, every woman, every child. A few years ago, in Dubai, our church meets in this big hotel there in Dubai. And just across the street from this hotel, there's an apartment building, kind of a lower income apartment building where there's a lot of uh, migrant workers that are living there. And one day, there was a, a, something happened and there was a fire. The whole building, the apartment building caught fire. And so it was this huge fire. The whole building burned down. Fortunately, nobody was killed, but many, many homes were destroyed. And so in the immediate aftermath, here's all these people out on the street right in front of this building They're thinking, where am I going to sleep tonight? We've lost all of our possessions. What are we going to do? What are we going to eat? And so we had a team from our church go and try to minister to those people and help them out. And we got together some basic necessities and provided those for them and helped try to locate them in places to stay. And so one of our pastors, Pastor Alvin, was caring for those people who were affected by this fire. And so as he spent time with them, as he talked to those people, and as he provided for their needs, Alvin began talking to these people and saying to them, Things like, hey, you just, you know, praise God, you survived this fire. You got out of this fire in your apartment building. Praise the Lord for that. But guess what? There's a bigger fire that's coming. And he went on to warn them of God's wrath and God's judgment and preach the gospel to them. And you say, you know what? That that sounds really cheesy. That sounds like a bad track, like one of those chick tracks of the cartoons. That's the kind of thing that, you know, where we would hear that kind of language. But guess what? The Lord used that fire. He used that opportunity. People heard that message from Pastor Alvin, and some of them got saved. And later on, we sent Pastor Alvin out as a church planter to plant a church in a different part of Dubai. And many of those people from the fire are now members of his church and growing in the Lord because of that fire that happened. Because Alvin was ready when the little fire came to warn them about the big fire that was coming. And see, this is what Joel is saying. Joel is saying that, that, you know, when these things happen, When locusts attack, when fires come, when viruses rage, the the job of God's people is to say there's something else coming because the little fire of COVID-19 reminds us of the big fire that's coming on the day of the Lord. And see, God's people are the ones who need to sound that alarm. God's people are the ones who need to blow that horn. The, The pandemic is something that needs to be a pointer to our true priorities. Look at verse one, it says, blow a trumpet. This is a call to God's people to get that shofar, that ram's horn, you know, they would blow it on the religious occasions or to warn of an invading army. He's saying, blow the trumpet, get up on the wall, sound an alarm. He's saying, let people know this, this danger is coming. Let people know what is happening. That's the job of God's people. And you know, I hope this year is different. I hope 2020, as we begin this new year, I hope that, that 2021 is a different kind of year than 2020 was. I hope that the, you know, the, the vaccines happen and people get better and the disease stops spreading and businesses can open back up. And I hope life goes back to normal during this year. But we need to remember, Christians, we need to remember that even if whatever danger there is from COVID-19 goes away, even if we vaccinate everybody and they're all safe from this disease, they are not safe from the coming day of the Lord. They are not safe from the wrath of God that's poured out on sin, because without Christ, all of us 
face the wrath of God for our own sin, for our own rebellion, for our own, uh, our own turning away from Him. Even if we fix the economy, even if we fix the politics, even if we fix everybody's health, that's the crisis that still remains, that's still there because it is a fearful thing, Hebrews 10 says, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And what we think, what we think if, you know, here's this, this, this disease that's raging around the world, what we think if, if somebody found the cure, if one of these companies found the, the, the cure that's going to fix it all and make it all go away and heal everybody, but what if that company had that cure and they held it back? They kept it, you know, locked up in the refrigerators or wherever they store these things. They did not give it out to the people. We would say, that's, you know, what are they doing they're dilly-dallying, they're, they're harming people by not bringing the solution that they have. In Christians, should we not feel that same measure of urgency that when we, we are the ones that have the solution to the problem, we need to get that solution out. We need to call people to be saved from this wrath. And so my prayer is that the Lord would use this coronavirus to awaken the church to the reality that every day around the world, 140,000 people give or take, about 140,000 people every day die without Christ. That's three people every two seconds, whether they're Muslim or they're Hindu or they're Buddhist or they're secular atheists, stand before God and face the wrath of God that falls upon sinners. That was true before COVID. That was true after COVID. And that's a crisis. That's devastation. And so the first reason for missions and pandemic is wrath. The wrath of God that's coming on the day of the Lord. But we need to watch out here. We need to watch out for oversimplifying the issue because we tend to think, you know, in our kind of oversimplifying minds, we tend to think, okay, uh, bad people get wrath and good people go to heaven. And so we're the good people over here. Here we are in church hearing sermons. So we're good. And so our job is to fix the bad people, to save the bad people from wrath we can do that. A lot of strategy in missions is about here's the good people, we'll go fix the bad people. Thank goodness we're the good people. But God's strategy, as we see it here in Joel, it's not just about the good people fixing the bad people. There's, there's more to it than that. There's more responsibility, even if you see yourself as one of the good people, because the second reason for missions and pandemic, the second reason is repentance. Repentance. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to me, God says. You see that language, return to me. If they need to return, it means they're, they're not with him now, right? They're not, they're not presently with the Lord. And you say, well, wait a minute. This book is a prophecy. This is written by a prophet of God to the people of God. This is not written to the Assyrians or to the Babylonians or to, to some pagan nation. But this is a book. It talks about worship. It talks about their sacrifices and about their feasts. These are God's people living in God's land, following the ways that God has called them to follow. So why do they need to return to God? Why is he calling his own people to repent? And when you read through Joel, you actually don't get a really specific answer to that question. Some of the other prophets say much more about the sins of God's people and their idolatries and, and the specific issues that they need to be repenting of. But, but Joel doesn't really name a lot of really specific sins. He, he, we don't have that in the book of Joel. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that Joel's point isn't to, to link this crisis of locusts to like one particular sin or a few particular sins. He's not saying that, you know, okay, we've got, you know, Moshe, and Moshe is stealing cows from Shlomo, and if he would just repent of that, then the whole thing is going to get fixed. It's not like that. It's not about one guy committing one sin, and let's just deal with that issue. This is a more general thing. It's a more general call to repentance for God's people because the point is general, that generally speaking, through this crisis, through their locust plague, that God is calling his people to return. He's calling his people to come back because this crisis for all of them is a call to wake up. To wake up in whatever way you need to be woken up that might differ from one person to another. But God's saying all of my people need to realize it's time to wake up. It's time to come back to me at the time of this plague. 
Israel's been heading away from Yahweh. We know that was true even from when they first came in the land, even when they first entered in Joshua and Judges. Uh, the, the Lord gave them his law. He gave them his way of worship. But they saw, hey, there's these pagans out here. They have these statues they worship. They have these, these ways of living and these ways of interacting with each other and these ways of you know, getting blessing on their fields and these social practices. They seem pretty good. And so the people of Israel were tempted to be like the culture around them. They were tempted to worship those idols. And they, they kind of wanted to have it both ways, didn't they? They didn't say, oh, we're not going to follow Yahweh anymore. We're going to follow the culture around us. But they kind of tried to do both. They said, hey, we, we, we're God's people. We, we go to the temple. We do our sacrifices. But, but we also, you know, sacrifice on the high places. And we also, you know, hang out with our neighbors and go to their parties and their festivals. And we, we do the, the cultural thing as well, even as we are also God's people. And see, God's saying, no, this is not working. It's time for a U-turn through this pandemic. It's time for my people uh, to be moving towards me, not away from me. That's what God is saying. Because here's what's ha- this is what happens to God's people. It happened to Israel then. It happens to, to us now in the church. What happens is that, that we can get a little bit, you know, especially when things are going well, we can kind of get a little bit immune to these sermons. We can get a little bit immune to these, these calls to repentance and to dealing with sin because we always know somebody worse than us. Whatever the issue is, we, all, we always know somebody out there that's, they're doing it worse than we are. They're, they're more extreme than we are. There's always somebody who's more angry or somebody who's more lustful or somebody who's more bitter or somebody who's more prideful. And so we think, yeah, I'm not perfect. You know, none of us are perfect. We believe that. But, but those guys out there, they're the ones that have the problem. It's not us. We're not the ones that have the problem. They need to straighten out their theology. They need to, to get more bold. They need to deal with their stuff. And we're just doing pretty okay over here. But see, the prophet's saying that he's saying a crisis, whether it's a locust crisis or a, or a COVID-19 crisis, he's saying that's not just a reminder to fix what's out there, but it's a call to fix what's in here, what's happening right here among God's people, because now is the time for God's people to examine themselves. Now is the time for God's people to repent. Now is the time for God's people to come back. A crisis like the one we're currently in is not the right time to say that we're okay, to say that we're doing it the way we should be doing it. Crisis is not a time to, you know, to be really puffed up and confident about what we're doing. Crisis is a time to be finding the logs in our own eyes. Crisis is a time, that, you know, it's not the time to criticize the ones who are more worldly than us. It's a time for us to ask, why are we as worldly as we are? Crisis is not a time for us to assume that our our current understanding of Scripture is good. We're good. We know our theology. We got it all right here. But crisis, rather, is a time for self-examination, for being teachable in our hearts and our spirits, for being humble as we come to the Word and let us teach it, teach us. Now is not a time for us to be more like the culture surrounding us, to be influenced by the things they're influenced by. But crisis is a time for us to renounce the ways of the culture around us and return back to what God has said in his word. And you see in verse 12, this is not just external repentance. Repentance, right? It's not just rending the garments and saying, crying and shouting and saying, oh, I'm so sad, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't do this anymore, right? But he says, rend your hearts and not your garments, don't just make a show of being sad. Don't make a show of being sorry. But, but rend your hearts, mourn your sin, make a, a complete change of orientation that starts from the inside out. I don't know if there's any latecomers here that are still working on their New Year's resolutions, but if so, Joel 2.12 would be a pretty good resolution. Maybe you should adopt that one. Because notice here in the context, what's motivating this? What, what are they trying to accomplish by this repentance? Well, what motivates The repentance in the midst of crisis is the knowledge of the character of God. Look at verse 13. It says, For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. We see those same words in many places in Scripture, most directly from Exodus chapter 34. You know the story in Exodus that, that there they had, God's people had been in the wilderness. They'd been at Mount Sinai. God had made his covenant with them. He'd given them his Ten Commandments and his law. And then what happened right away? They broke his law. They worshiped that golden calf. They, they committed idolatry right there on the spot 
at Mount Sinai, and God was angry. His wrath was burning. He was going to destroy them, but Moses interceded, and God averted his wrath. God pulled back his wrath. Why? In Exodus 34, because of who he is, because he is a God who's gracious and merciful. Our God is slow to anger. Our God is abounding in steadfast love. And see, Scripture puts those things together, God's wrath and God's mercy, God's anger and God's grace. Scripture wants us to see both of those things at the same time because it wants us to see that the realities of God's merciful and gracious character go right alongside the realities of his wrath against sin. We've got to have both. We can't pick one or the other. You know, some people say God's nice in the New Testament and he's mean in the Old Testament. No, in in both Testaments, God is both. He is the God who has wrath against sin. He is the God who brings judgment against sin. But he is also the God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Joel is saying, come back to that God. Come back to that merciful God because he wants you back. He wants his people back. He wants people to know him and to know that forgiving aspect of his character. What does that have to do with missions? What does that have to do with missions? Well, look at verse 17. It says... Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Why should they say that? Because the broader context here is that all throughout Scripture, we see this story of God transforming a people in order to reveal himself. God wants to be known to the world. He wants the knowledge of him to spread to the ends of the earth. And the way he does that is through his people. The way he does that is through taking a sinful people, taking a rebellious people, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and calling them and saving them and bringing them to that initial repentance, but then bringing them to repentance again and again and again and transforming them to be loving as he is loving and merciful as he is merciful and gracious as he is gracious. And when a people is like that, that is a people who shows the world what their God is like. It's just like if you were from a broken home and you observed a loving family enjoying each other and smiling with each other and laughing with each other and talking honestly with each other, you you might see that family and say, I wish I had a family like that. But if you were, say, at a restaurant and you saw back when you could go to restaurants, right, and you you saw some drunken father yelling at his children, nobody's going to look at that and say, oh, I wish he were my dad, right? We are attracted to the family of God by what we see of God's character manifested among his people. And that's the way that God designed it. And so what that means, friends, is that when the church is a place of ongoing repentance, when the church is continuing, when we are a people who are step by step by step growing to be more like our Father who is in heaven, when we're a place of biblical faithfulness, we're a place of genuine love, and we're a place of ongoing repentance, when that happens, then the church is the most beautiful place in the world. The church is the city on the hill. The church is the light of the world. The church is the place where people see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. But when God's people quit repenting, when we think we're doing good as we are right now, when we get sucked into the partisan fights of the day, when we, you know, kind of formulate our conversation based more on our radio station or our TV station than the Word of God, when we are just as joyless and hopeless and angry as everybody else that's around us, people start to look at us and they say, where is their God? Because whatever God they have, I can live without that God. The problem, friends, is that we don't look enough like God. And so in missions, in missions, the 1040 window where I live, it's the most unreached part of the world. We have in our region, just in the country surrounding us, we have 4.4 billion people who are unreached, who many of whom do not have access to the gospel, who are, don't live anywhere near a church or anywhere near Christians who can preach the gospel to them. But there are some Christians out there. There are pockets in a place like India, the most unreached country in the world. There are places where there are Christian tribes and Christian communities and Christian churches of some kind that have been there for tens or hundreds or, or, or longer numbers of years. And while there are so many stories of faithful Christians preaching the gospel amidst persecution and standing for Christ against the flow of the culture around them, we have many stories like that. But we also have these places where there are, there are professing Christians And then there's so many unbelievers around them, there's just little to no gospel impact. Why is that? Well, what's going on there when we have professing Christians and then people around them are not hearing the gospel, people around them are not coming to know 
Christ and believe? What's going on there? A lot of answers, a lot of explanations we could give, but I think one reason is a lack of repentance. One reason reason is those professing Christians not being a people characterized by repentance because in Exodus, Israel was called to be God's light to the nations, but by Joel's day, as we kept having more idolatry with no repentance and a little more idolatry with no repentance and a little more idolatry with no repentance, year after year after year after year, their mission had failed. They had not shown God's light to the nations. When God's people repent, God's word is what's molding our heart. When God's people repent, God's word is correcting our doctrinal confusion. When God's people repent, God's word is is shaping our response to our cultural idols. But when God's people get out of the habit of repenting, when we assume that we're good enough as is, the opposite is true. When God's people are out of the habit of repenting, instead of becoming conformed to the image of our God, we show the world something ugly, something unattractive, that we veil the beauty of the gospel by our lack of repentance. That's what happened in Israel. That's what happens so often in the global church today, that, that the kind of repentance that the prophet is calling for is the missing ingredient. It's the bottleneck that we have this, rather than the beautiful people of God, we have the ugly people of God who are, who are holding the light of the gospel back from the world. Because non-repentant Christians don't help the mission They hurt the mission. When God's people don't like God, we're sending a message about who God is. When God's people don't look like God, we're we're actually pushing people towards other religions rather than calling them towards God. And so what we see in missions as we're over there in the 1040 window, we see what what we need more than anything else is we, we need for the gospel to go forward to the places where it's not. We need God's people in every place, all of those who claim the name of Christ to be clearly seeing what God's word says, to be clearly applying what God's word says, to be clearly repenting and coming into conformity with the image of Christ. And friends, that's why we need the church. That's what the church does. That's the job of the church because the way that God makes himself known is through repentant people whose lives are being increasingly transformed because only a people who are marked by God by ongoing repentance can show God's grace and God's mercy and God's patience and God's love even as they warn of his wrath. Because it's only by being taught the word, as you're here being taught the word right now, and only by living among other Christians that, that we are going to see where we need to repent. We're going to see those blind spots in our own lives, see those sins that, that continue to beset us. It's only by seeing that that we will continue to grow and to change. And that means that in missions, the church is just not, it's not just like a thing that's nice to have, you know, if we get around to it someday, let's start some churches. But missions, but in missions, the church is absolutely essential. It's absolutely vital that that, that what we need above all else, not just here, but around the world, what we need above all else is true churches, faithful churches, churches that are organized according to God's word, that are led according to God's word, that are led by qualified leaders who are qualified according to God's word and who are proclaiming God's word in such a way that God's people are increasingly becoming like God. We need those kinds of churches around the world. We've seen God do that in Dubai. 60 years ago, the first house church was started in Dubai, gradually growing along with the city. 10 years ago, that church was able to plant a church on the other side of the city. That church, that new church is called Redeemer Church of Dubai. That's the church where we now serve Uh, Over the last 10 years, that church has rapidly grown as the city has grown. People have come to know Christ by the, uh, you know, by five, by 10, by by dozens. The church has grown to more than 1,000 people from 60 different nations, worshiping Christ, proclaiming the name of Christ. The the church has been able to plant other churches around the seven emirates of the UAE in other countries like Lebanon, like Kuwait, like India. The Lord is spreading his gospel through his church, and there's no fancy mission strategy about it, no special method or textbook or curriculum that we're using. We're just seeing the church being the church, the church repenting, the church growing, the church being God's people. And what we need in missions, we just need more of that. We just need more churches being the church in more places. That's why we're training pastors and training church plans. We just need the church being the church in more places around the world. And friends, we're talking about the 1040 window and these things, but this missionary thinking about the repentant people of God shining the light of God to the world, we could use this thinking right here. We could use this same thinking closer to home that we need to keep 
discerning how we, can, we as God's people, wherever we are, can be those who simultaneously warn of judgment, but also present a beautiful and compelling and repentant picture of what it means to show God's grace and compassion and mercy to the world. See, if our reaction to this pandemic is one of, 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 of hate, and of anger, and of turning away from the community in which God has placed us. If our reaction to the present crisis is to, to, to be opposed to our community, to condemn our community, to condemn those who aren't doing it like us, I don't think that's going to work. We're going to have missed the opportunity that's presented by this crisis. But it may be that the solution to continuing to reach the Central Valley and Kingsburg and all the areas around here is for the church to keep being the church. And I know that's happening here. I know I've talked to people this morning who are telling me of how God is doing that here in the church. And I say, keep up the good work. Keep faithfully being the church and preaching the gospel because God is using you to make himself known here where you are. I think, you know, people say this is, this is a bad season for missions. People say, you know, 2020, 2021, this, is, this might be the end of missions as we know it. But I think this can be a good season for missions. And this can be the best season for missions. This can be the best season of the church that we have ever seen. Because I think that if the church takes COVID-19 as a wake-up call to come back to God, if we return to him, as Joel says, I think we're going to look back 100 years from now and say that 2020, 2021 was the best thing that God could have ever done for his church. Because it's through this that God made himself known to the nations. But why is missions essential in pandemic? I promised three motivations. as three words, and so I gave you the first one, wrath. The second one, repentance. And thirdly and finally, we want to see rescue. Rescue. Let's skip down just a little bit in the passage. Look at 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so back in Joel's day, there's this immediate locust plague, and there's a call for immediate. Right then, they should be repenting. They should be returning to God. But but God also shows this prophet not just what's going to happen immediately, but he shows them what's going to happen later. In some future time, God's going to do something different. God's going to do something unique. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to work in a new way by dwelling among his people, by being poured out on all flesh. And that phrase, all flesh, what does that make you think of? When you, when you read the Bible, you think of all flesh, you, you kind of think, I think back to the flood. To the flood, because remember in Genesis 6, what does God say? He says, all flesh has corrupted their way on earth. He says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Back in Noah's day, all flesh. All people, all, all humankind have sin. All flesh deserves God's wrath, but Joel is saying that a a different kind of day is coming. A different day is coming in, in a day in which just as back then God poured down water on all flesh in judgment of sin, in this future day God is going to pour down his spirit bringing salvation on all flesh. That's what's going to happen. In the time of Noah, a judgment is coming and only a select few could escape that judgment on all flesh. But in this future time that Joel's talking about, a judgment is coming. But escape, rescue, is available to all flesh, to everyone through the Spirit of God. So he says in 2.32, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved because the Spirit is going to be poured out everywhere. And so this message is going to be available to everyone. When it talks about you know, prophesying and men and women and sons and daughters, it's saying that, that everyone, you know, there's, it's not only for a few, it's not only for one kind of person. This message is going to go to every person in these last days because this same God, the same God who's going to pour out his wrath and judgment, this same God in his grace and in his mercy and in his kindness, he's offering rescue and he's offering it to all. And in Joel's time, as they deal with this locust crisis, this is not now, future hope. It's something, this is something God's going to do later. He's not doing it now, he's going to do it later. But then in the New Testament, guess what happens? In the New Testament, we read the book of Acts, and in Acts 2, here's the disciples, and Jesus had promised to send his spirit right before he ascends into heaven. So they're waiting, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit arrives, and they're there on Pentecost. They're praying, the Holy Spirit comes, he descends on them like with the tongues of fire, and the apostles start preaching the gospel in many different languages, signifying the availability of the spirit and the gospel to all different nations. And then Peter is going to explain what's happening. He's going to explain this proclamation of the gospel to different nations. So Peter stands up 
in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and what does he do? He preaches Joel chapter 2. He says in Acts 2.16, Peter says, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and he quotes our passage. He says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's saying this is being fulfilled. Maybe not all of it, not all of these signs. Some of these still await the future realization of the coming day of the Lord. But he's saying, here's what's happening now. This part, the end part, the punchline, that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's saying, that's happening now. Everybody can be saved now. Everybody who's facing the wrath of God can be rescued from sin right now. So everyone needs to call out to the name of the Lord now. That's what Peter's saying. How can that come about? How can that be? Well, look at the next verse. He says in verse 22, Peter says, He just said, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from Joel 2. Then 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Peter goes on to preach Jesus. He's saying it's through this Jesus, through this one who was just crucified, through this one who just rose from the dead, having died as a substitute for sinners. It's through this Jesus that all of us can cry out to the Lord. And so they hear this message. And what happens? Many believe. Many believe. They were cut to the heart, verse 37. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, a time of crisis ought to be a time of mission because a crisis like the one we're in reminds us both that rescue is needed and rescue is available. It's available to everyone through the Spirit of God. Nobody has to face judgment. You don't have to face judgment. You don't have to bear the consequences of your own sin. Instead, you can turn back to the Lord. Turn back to this Lord. You can call upon the name of this gracious and merciful God, and you can be saved. You can be saved. Rescue is available to all who call upon his name, to all who turn back to this God. The apostles loved Joel. Paul quotes the same passage in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul wants us to know, he wants us to know that salvation is available to everyone today in Romans 10, 13. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel 2. Paul's saying that all those people who face judgment today, all those nations who haven't heard the gospel, all those people in my backyard in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, whether they're, they're here in your backyard in the Central Valley, Paul's saying that salvation is available now to them. So Paul goes on in Romans 10, 14. He says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Friends, you want to know why missions? That's why. That's why. The other day I had a conversation with a young lady. Let's call her Joy. She wanted to join our church. She's a university student. She grew up in a household that was hostile to Christianity, hostile to the gospel, and as a teenager, she, she knew that the religion of her parents that she saw, she didn't want that. She turned away from her parents' religion, but she didn't know what she was. She felt lost. She felt alone. She felt adrift. She told me that she was overwhelmed by a fear of death. A couple of years ago, one day, somebody invited Joy to visit Redeemer Church, and she came. She heard the preaching of the gospel, and she didn't like it. She thought it was weird. She thought all these people were weird. She thought the message was weird. The church, she, she was not into it. She didn't come back. But she met some people that day at the church, and they followed up with her. And they started talking to her, and they started meeting up with her, and they started studying the Bible with joy. And, and little by little, verse by verse, day by day, week by week, joy came to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joy came to call upon the name of the Lord, and joy was saved. And when I met her at the end of all of this, her fear was gone. She no longer feared death. She was living with hope. She was living with joy. She was so excited to get baptized and to join the church. And this is just one of so many similar stories I hear week by week, month by month, year by year. And the stories are simple, but every story is a miracle because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the word of Christ. And because that's true, friends, we're going to keep preaching the gospel in Arabia 
We're going to keep seeking to make Christ known through the church there in the Middle East. We're going to keep training pastors and training church planners. You're going to keep doing the same thing here in the Central Valley. And we're all going to keep crying out to the Lord for fruit from this partnership. We're going to keep working together to make disciples of all nations, of all those right here and all those who have never heard, because the urgency has never been greater than right now. The need has never been greater than right now. The opportunity has never been greater than right now. Friends, what we are doing together is essential business. It's as essential as the souls of men and women. It's been a hard last year. I haven't enjoyed being stuck in my rented house for most of the last 10 months. I haven't enjoyed life on Zoom very much. Our church is still under a lot of restrictions. We're only very gradually getting back to worshiping together in person, but the Lord is working. The gospel is not on quarantine. We just baptized 20 people a couple of weeks ago. Seminary enrollment is double what it was last year. It's a tenfold increase from our first year five years ago. You've been praying with us for new professors to come and to to join the team and to grow the ministry after years of working to find the right people and to raise funds and do all the things we need to do to to build that missionary team. We have the first new professor moved to Dubai last week. Another new one, the Smiths, who many of you know are coming in just a couple of months. The Lord is growing the team. He's growing our capacity to take advantage of these opportunities God has brought. We have right now students from 25 different countries, many of which I can't name right here who are wanting to learn, wanting to be trained, wanting to go and preach the gospel in those hard places. In the next year, if the Lord provides, we'll see a new seminary campus started in Abu Dhabi, our second campus. We'll see graduates scattered to preach the gospel in churches around the region. And we all long for the days when church can be normal again. We all long for the days when life gets back to normal. And I'm sure people of Joel's day thought similarly about the locusts. They thought, Lord, let's, let's get over this. Lord, Lord, make them go away. Lord, when can we be back to normal? But God said, no, not yet. It's not time yet because there's things that my people can learn from a crisis that they're not going to learn in any other way. So friends, let's learn. Let's remember that God is rescuing, so let's keep sending. Let's remember that God calls people to repentance, so let's keep being a repentant church. Let's remember that God's wrath is coming. So let's be urgent about this work. That's why missions. May God give us the grace to keep continuing and persevering together. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for our partnership in the gospel. May you work powerfully through Grace Church of the Valley, in the Central Valley, and around the world for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.